glass knives. This movie has glass knives. Uh, well, obsidian glass. They're, they're rock knives. They're not dragon glass? They're glass They are knives. dragon glass. Yeah, but they don't look... This Game of Thrones glass knives look like bullshit compared to this. That's true. Yeah, they Michelle are. Pfeiffer is that swinging m- some cool-ass knives. Meat cleaver of There's a glass a cl- knife The cleaver she has. is like terrifying, awesome. right? One of the coolest things I've ever seen in a movie. Hey. How have I been sleeping on this film for 12 years? Question, question, question. Why does a dude bleed blue? I never he's blue blood. He's royalty. Is, is that really it? Yeah, it's, it's, I was it's, clever. It's just I didn't know that, if it was that or if it was a magic thing, the way she killed him. I think it's him. just very clever. I like that. I, I, uh, I, I want to read it as he's a blue blood. Yeah. I like that better. Well, when we get into expanding the syllabus, I have a feeling that's uh, exactly Matthew Vaughn's intent. I talked mm, about it. I think that Michelle Pfeiffer has the same effect on me now as she did in Batman Returns when I was t- 10. She's foxy as hell in this movie. Yeah. yeah. Can you specifically describe that effect? I don't know. If I don't think he that. needs to. I've got, it, I've got a rough idea. <laughs> I don't know what he means. If it's anything like the effect me? it had Ow. on me, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know what he means. <laughs> she is um, having a good time. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Good Trash Undercast. We gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film stays course. This what? week's film is on the title of the podcast when you clicked it, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's Stardust. Uh, and uh, very, very excited to be talking about uh, this Neil Gaiman penned short story, Brought our novel novella brought to life, and I have a copy of the novella right here. How awesome! Um, it's very, very fun. It's a special guest in the studio today. Yes, the book. Um, the book. We're gonna ask it questions later. Uh, oh, mischief managed. Okay, we can do this. I, I brought sol- my runes. I solemnly swear that I'm up to no good. It will speak to us now. Oh, will it? No. Oh, uh, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't. Was that a reference to something? Harry Potter. Oh, no, I'm just doing a bit. Oh. Read another book. I can never tell if Dalton's doing a bit or if he just got so drawn into his phone that he's distracted. He, <laughs> he didn't know, know what happening. I was talking about. No, I'm pulling up yeah. box office numbers. <laughs> so uh, anyway, in case you're tuning in for the very first time to this particular show, we are not a review show. We're an analysis show, and that does mean we have to talk about the end or endings or possible endings or variant endings of the various pieces of film uh, text that we examine. And so that means it is a spoiler zone. However, we do what we can to avoid that spoiler ridge by this. We start out with synopsis, which is you know vaguely spoiler free we do thumbs up thumbs down reviews kind of all the light which you might read in a newspaper and so generally giving you an idea of what's going on without telling you all the details then we expand the syllabus we talk about how we would teach this film in a class that would be a much uh, more moderate spoiler area and then we finally just get right down to business and that means all of the spoiler bets are off so that is uh, your warning dear listener so without any further ado let's go ahead and go over to Arthur Gordon and uh, let's hear that synopsis please Once upon a time, in the small English village of Wall, a young man fell in love with a girl. To win her heart, he promised to venture beyond the town into a forbidden land beyond the wall known as Stormhold. Stormhold is wild and out, though, as the king has died, (laughs) and three of his seven sons are on a quest to take the crown, thus sending them after the fallen star as well. The fallen star has also attracted some aging witches, as they hope to make a Miles Davis special to ensure immortality. The young man finds the fallen star that turns out to be a beautiful woman. As he forces her to return to wall with him, they must battle the witches, the brothers, and even face off with a group of sky pirates led by Captain Shakespeare. As the two get closer to wall, the boy begins to wonder if his true love might not be the very star he travels with. Kidnapped. Matthew Vaughn's Stardust <laughs> is based on the work by Neil Gaiman and debuted in 2007 to positive reviews and a modest box office return. It did, in fact, have just a modest box office return off of $70 million, its final gross. Anybody want to take a stab at it? 130? $438 million. I know Arthur was correct. It is no. worldwide 135, so with marketing, it probably barely made its budget back. Yeah, barely. Uh, I think it, it did 30 in the States. It did not do good here. It did gangbusters overseas. made 96. Not uh, bad. Not bad. Yeah, about twice the gross. Sounds uh, about right. This opening weekend, just to remind you what was going on this weekend in uh, 2007. So this is August 10th through 12th. We got, what, second week in August? Uh, Rush Hour 3 opens the same weekend as Stardust and crushes it. It makes... $49 million on its opening weekend. Checks out. Fuck yourself, Brett Ratner. Uh, <laughs> coming up second, uh, a better movie. Uh, not a whole lot better. Uh, the Bourne Ultimatum uh, is in its second weekend. Makes 32 mil, uh, close to 33. In its third... <laughs> There's a skeptic at the table. <laughs> I think not. <laughs> uh, coming up after that, I totally forgot about this movie. I saw this one in theaters. We got the Simpsons movie. Oh, yeah. Making I saw that uh, 11 million that weekend. Uh, it is up to... Wow, uh, it's total gross ended up being 152. Did you guys know that? Mm. We made a lot of money. Uh, and out. finally, uh, also new that weekend, 
Number four, Stardust opens to nine million. Rounding up the top five, we've got Hairspray, which is up from the previous weekend with six point three. So yeah, nobody really gave a shit about Stardust this weekend that came out. Yeah, yeah. Well, they marketed it as kind of a Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter kind of thing, right? I don't remember. I don't I, either. I'm I'm sixteen. I'm honestly surprised this made its budget back. Yeah, I don't remember anybody talking about fantasy I, adventure kind of story. Yeah, I was definitely yeah in the. Uh, I feel like. We just quantify that all marketing for fantasy movies is either just Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter as yeah. Well, but, and I think that's part of the problem though, right? This yeah. movie is going for that Harry Potter Lord of the Rings market again. Sixteen, the summer this comes out, I should have been the prime target for this, but aesthetically, it definitely seems to appeal towards children a little bit more. Despite I don't think being a children's movie, it's not. Children's it's not that movie. kind of fantasy movie. It, well, it's much more Princess Bride. Yeah, and Princess Bride's kind of a hard sell to teenagers too. Fantasy is hard to sell to teens unless it's grim. Yes. True. And yeah. this is not great. No, but that's part of why it's so good. It's very joyful. Oh, uh, it's so wholesome. So, well, I guess you're already saying these wholesome, joyful things about it, Dalton. Um, what did you think of Stardust? I, guys, I really like this movie. I'm mad I slept on it when it came out. It's, it's so charming. It's got great opening voiceover from, uh, the one and only Ian McKellen. And, ooh, bad voiceover will get your movie off to a rough start, but good voiceover? I just put you in the pocket immediately. You knew exactly what Stardust is about as soon as it, it starts. And uh, Ian McKellen's uh, delivery of that opening VO is just so whimsical. And the actual writing of it is very storybook. And I think that is what Stardust uh, accomplished so quickly. Jane Goldman, uh, who uh, wrote the screenplay with Matthew Vaughn, who directed uh, their screenplay just with that voiceover really establishes the tone. And that's a tricky thing to do. Cause I think this movie's tone is weird to say the least. Uh, but it is, it's, it's high camp, uh, while simultaneously taking its fantasy very, very seriously. It's high fantasy camp, which is not something you see a lot. And I, I think maybe why it didn't do great when it came out. I think this film's aesthetic is maybe perfect for right now. I think fantasy is a, a much bigger genre, uh, after game of Thrones than it was when this film came out. And uh, I don't know. I think you could sell this movie today. I really do. I don't know how. Uh, that's not my job. Uh, but I think you could. Uh, but again, just from, from Jump Street, we've got this really great opening monologue. We've got a, a delightful prologue that ends in some just very wholesome and adorable banging. We've got a wayward uh, shotgun. No shotgun wedding because it's a fantasy story. But we've got a wayward babe in the woods coming back to its land like it's just it just establishes everything so perfectly uh and then uh we skip to when that little baby turns into young charlie cox and off we go on this journey um it's great uh we we do such a good job in this film of visiting uh all of our moving pieces because there's a lot going on you know we've got uh, mark strong and uh what's the other guy's name that's the other guy that's in all the uh matthew vaughn movies uh, Jason Fleming. I knew I'd remember it. You got Mark Strong and Jason Fleming running around in their prince costumes. You got Charlie Cox and Claire Danes running through the woods. You got Michelle Pfeiffer just doing all kinds of comedy. It's great. It's so funny and manages to keep all of these plates spinning until they meet each other in the third act. And then it has a great third act. Like, what more do you want out of a film? It's got good jokes. It's got fun set pieces. It legitimately has maybe one of my favorite uh, monologues about love ever. This is a great movie, guys. I can't believe nobody saw it when it came out, and I'm very excited we're talking about it. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton. Hey, Arthur, did you like Stardust? I did, actually. Um, I was intrigued to revisit this. I watched it a few years ago. I mean, it's probably been about a decade. It was on home media, though. Um, and uh, I don't remember if I was into it or if I'd fallen asleep during it or what. So it was a little questionable about where I would land on the rewatch. Uh, but I was really into it. I, I think it soars uh, pretty well on, on all these kind of episodic, uh, events that are taking place. Um, like Dalton said, that opening monologue, uh, narration from McKellen, mm. uh, that delivery that there's a little bit of snark in there that also had to help set the tone as well. And the way, you know, he's reacting to some of these thoughts and things is, is a lot of fun. And then, yeah, just the world that's built and designed. And I, I like this idea of kind of this, uh, forbidden world just outside of the, the county lines of, uh, the wall. Um, and so the performances are, are, are a lot of fun. Claire Danes, I, I, I wish we got more Claire Dane. Uh, and, and just in too. life, uh, not in the movie. I just mean in life. Like, yeah, no, it's such a bummer she ended good. up on Homeland because Homeland's apparently not very good, uh, but apparently she's great on it. Yeah, so I don't. She's great here. Uh, you know, and, uh. and it's it's so fascinating her 
I, I think she looks a lot like Sienna Miller, and I think they both look a lot like Gwyneth Paltrow. So there's like this weird dynamic there that maybe they just can't all be cast at the same time in the same <laughs> year. Um, but uh, she's so good here. Charlie Cox, uh, little baby Charlie Cox. Um, so young. I didn't know who he was at the time, but now it's hard to uh, realize he can actually see uh, because I got so used <laughs> to him as Matt Murdock. Yeah, you used to seeing him with glasses on a lot. Yeah, it's weird to see him without the glasses. Yeah. And uh, – so, uh, but De Niro as uh, Captain Shakespeare is a all-time performance for for Bobby. Firmly um, agree. It is right up there with his performance in Brazil as like one of his best post being famous supporting roles. It's I mean this if you watch De Niro movies, you would never expect De Niro to do this character and he just lands it so well and I think he's having a ball here. Uh you know what and I really appreciate how that character is ingrained in this movie for the first time in his career he reminded me of brad pitt and i was just like damn if de niro wasn't such a good leading man maybe he'd have gotten weird more weird character performances because he's great at him and this this is at a point in his career where he's really phoning in a lot of stuff that he's yeah, doing so he it's, showed he's, up to work yeah and he's, he's doing that analyze this stuff at this yeah point. yeah he's, he's having a blast here um man yeah michelle pfeiffer love uh i, I like the way this film comes together i, I like there's this um this rush to, to get there. It feels like, you know, there is a, uh, in the narrative, there's a, what she has to be back in a week. He's trying to get back to Victoria in one week. And so there's this real impetus to return. And I think that's echoed by the score, which has this kind of pounding clicking talk, uh, click clicking time clock element to it. Um, and so I, I think it all comes together pretty well. I, I, I don't have a lot of complaints about it. I, I really dig it. I, I'm surprised we don't see more fantasy stuff. And, and, you know, you spoke to Game of Thrones. We're going to have the Lord of the Ring thing on Amazon in a couple of years. So I'm wonderful to see it. But I was looking today, and I think there are maybe one or two other high fantasy type movies that came out this year. I mean, it's just an underserved genre, which is kind of bizarre to me because I think it's one where you can really play and have fun. Yeah, it feels like the last, like, as, as nerdery uh, takes over the world through uh, superhero flicks, it seems like fantasy is like the one corner of the nerd world that's just been left alone. Like sci-fi has been mainstream accepted since the seventies, but fantasy is just a hard sell for people. Yeah. And, and so, well, fantasy has got an aesthetic and we'll talk more about that later. I think that, um, there are aesthetics and there's one that's more in style, I think, than what Stardust is doing. Mm. And that's part of what I think yeah. maybe part of the problem is. And so there's not much depth to it. I was explore. doing some reading, you know, this is kind of a high fantasy, like a, pre-Tolkien type of high fantasy right. uh, that's being written. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the film kind of captures that. I think a lot of fantasy, especially post-Tolkien, that's written. I remember reading Aragon, and it feels like Aragon's just kind of playing within that Tolkien-style world of fantasy. And I think, you know, Tolkien really shaped how fantasy is played. And so I think anything that deviates from that style is maybe not quite as accepted. Yeah. Um, but I think this does a great job of building a world, of creating characters and living in this place and playing by his own rules. I love the ghosts. I, I love the brothers. I think they're a lot of fun. I love that they name remain... sequentially. Yes. This is a great bit. Uh, and they have tattoos. I, I, uh, to remember, I love it when they are dead. They ghost remains there, uh, retains their, uh, death form. Yeah. Real uh, American werewolf in London shit. I yeah, like it. And, and so a lot of those little nods are just great. And I like that, uh, Vaughn and even, you know, Guyman in the source material is really playing with these kind of fantasy tropes and just having a blast with it. And I think that comes across well. And yeah, it's a uh, movie people slept on and uh, wish they had it because I think we maybe having a different discourse now. Maybe maybe in the next few years, it'll get one of those speed racer treatments where people are like, hey, Sardis is better than anybody remembered. Well, and that's when uh, we decided we were going to be doing this. That's kind of what had me excited. I think we're already getting there. I think there is some rumblings. I think the, the defenders of this movie uh, sing its praises quite loudly. So I think you might be right about that. It's they? highly rated on IMDb. I mean, it's like a seven and a half on IMDb, which is a bit surprising. Yeah, and they're, so. they're weird over there. I don't yeah, know. but yeah. IMDb users are hard to nail down. I don't, yeah, I don't know. they think still... they think Shawshank Redemption is one of the, like five best movies ever That's made. That's true. It's good, but it ain't bad. No, it ain't that. It's a lot of movies. Um, yeah, there are a lot of movies. So yeah, uh, yeah. Stardust, thumbs up. Thumbs up. Very good. Where very you good. at, Dustin? I like it a lot. Um, I didn't really love it a lot the very first time I watched it because I watched it immediately upon the heels of reading the novella. Mm. And uh, there are some significant differences. And they're not really, I was going to say tonal differences, but um, it is more of a plotty kind of thing. Um, just the ways in which some things are resolved. There is a, uh, there's a little bit more bittersweetness as well uh, in the uh, novella. And so Dunstan Thorne, you know, is sort of seated there with... Uh, 
uh, Una at the end of the novella. That does not happen. He has a he he, he marries the woman. He he marries his Victoria basically, and oh. uh, she is the uh, stepmother to Tristan. And Tristan has an evil evil she's, stepmother. She's not evil. She's 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 okay. Has a bummer stepmother. Yeah, she is kind of a bummer, but she kind of, I mean she kind of comes around. Oh, okay. Uh, and but but she is kind of his true love, and he just kind of misses out. Damn. And um. That happens sometimes, um, you know, and so th- there's a certain realism that's going on there with the novella. But upon watching this and having been a long time since I've read the novella, it's just a hoot. It, I mean, it very much is the, the 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 spiritual sequel to The Princess Bride we've already mentioned. It's just that funny. It is just that goofy. It is just having that much fun. It is that campy. And uh, performances are great. Um, I love the ways in which the world is detailed um, with Babylon candles and other sort of bits of, of Stuff that you would, you know, just would be assumed to know, and that um, Charlie Cox's uh, Tristan character is a really great sort of uh, everyman vehicle into the world and does a very great job with it. Um, also, just seeing, you know, Daredevil beat up Superman is always awesome. Um, I'm a fan of that happening um, at all times. It's almost like Batman beating him up, almost. It's uh, almost better, honestly. I, it, I like it. I do too. Uh, so I, I, <laughs> he pulls out that little bitty rapier, and he and <laughs> Tristan's got a real sword. It's so good. It's like all right, here we go. Oh, it's so funny. Mm, I'm out. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, you laugh when you're supposed to laugh, and uh, you're moved when you're supposed to be moved. And it is, you know, again, a very sort of uh, sweet confection of a love story. But I'm okay with that. Um, I think it's hearts in the right place, though. Yeah. Right? It's a sweet yeah. confectionery love story about not settling, which I think is is wholesome. Absolutely. And that this idea that you sort of want that quote unquote popular girl or whatever, but there's you know maybe she's kind of awful. Well, yeah, and it's it's it's. it's very much interested in this idea of uh look just uh just like uh ladies in our society get sold ideas about uh relationships uh, uh dudes get sold ideas too and mm-hmm. I, I think this uh idea of performing love as a service is uh pretty well ingrained in our society i like the the idea this uh story is peddling of a uh, no nah, man it's a it's a mutually assured agreement yes and so, yeah, I, I do like what it's doing uh, in that sense. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun, and I like it a ton. And so I was very, very glad to have rewatched it for this show. So there you go, dear listener. Our biases are quite pro regarding the film Stardust. Let's get on down to where we expand our syllabus. So you are teaching some class in which Stardust will find its way into the syllabus. It can be any course that you want to pick. And uh, But what would the module look like? What would the week look like, additional readings and or viewings, if... If you were teaching Stardust in some form of an academic setting, I go to you first. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say, buddy? Yeah, I I, I didn't have a lot of time. I think I would just go probably with a kind of uh, the hero's journey and then also some kind of subversions of that. But, uh, you know, obviously, I think you'd start with Joseph Campbell, you know, no matter what you might think of his work and his you know, outlining the hero's journey. I think it is kind of pivotal uh, to be familiar with that idea. Are you thinking least, more hero of a thousand faces or yeah, power of myth? Probably hero of a thousand faces. Yeah. Um, where we'd go with that to just have some ground reading with the idea of, of the, uh, the hero's journey. Uh, and then I'd probably throw in your star Wars and your Harry Potter. Those are pretty simple examples. Even maybe reading the Hobbit. Those are all solid examples of that working. Um, but then I think uh, from there I deviate a little bit because I want to play around and I would actually, I would do stardust. I would do the princess bride. I think they work fairly similar wells, you know, not only with the hero's journey, but also picking apart the, the elements of fantasy. Uh, but then I'm going to move into big trouble in little China, uh, which really kind of nice. subverts that, that hero's journey element. You know, Jack Burton is just uh, a goofball of all goofballs and is not the uh, competent hero. And you realize uh, halfway through the movie, he's not actually the hero on the journey. He is assisting the hero on the journey. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a fun subversion of, of those tropes. And so that's the direction I would probably take that class. It's really easy to lay out if you're familiar with those things. Um, and if you're in, you know, the story, you know, script writing, story making, storytelling, uh, the hero's journey is kind of familiar uh, territory you need to be uh, grounded in. And so that's, that's the simple direction I would take this class. Excellent, excellent. I like that all very much. What do you say, Dalton? How would you teach a class revolving around Stardust? Well, I know we typically try to shy away from auteur theory on this show. because We do. uh, Yeah, filmmaking doesn't work that way. So stop now. Well, look... We're going to go ahead and do that. Thanks a lot, Dalton. Moving on. Uh, sometimes it's interesting. Glad you pointed that out. Sometimes it's interesting, though. Uh, not every film is a product of the filmmaker. Uh, if Let me rephrase that. The director is not the end-all, be-all author of a film. That said, the director is kind of the person who uh, puts all the architecture together. 
And so when we look at the projects that directors choose, I think it can reveal a lot if you accept the premise that most films are about the filmmakers that made them. Uh, so we are going to go ahead and do a little bit of a study on Matthew Vaughn's filmography here, because I think there is this really interesting recurring theme throughout his filmography about uh, great things from humble beginnings, you know, secrets in plain sight, that sort of stuff. Uh, and I think part of the reason for that may very well be not to armchair uh, Matthew Vaughn a little bit. I'm not qualified to be his therapist, but um, for those of you who don't know, Matthew Vaughn's biological father is a real famous, uh, well, not famous, a real lordy uh, type, as uh, the godson of uh, King George the Sixth or some shit. Uh, so anyway, nobly blooded dude is uh, Matthew Vaughn's dad. He went most of his life not knowing that and learned uh, that he was, you know, illegitimate aristocracy uh, as a as a young man. So I, I think that kind of informs his filmography. I didn't have enough time to revisit Layer Cake, so I don't know how that really fits into this idea, unfortunately, but. If we go ahead and start with Stardust and look at his filmography from there, I think you can see this recur throughout in really interesting ways. So obviously we've got Tristan here, uh, the secret uh, wayward boy who comes from a magical land, right? Uh, stuck in uh, England all by himself uh, with uh, this this kindly man to raise him. Uh, but if we carry this forward, there it's kind of a you know an accidental orphaning thing. But if we carry through to something like Kingsman, uh, this is literally just a movie uh, about uh, a kid growing up a uh, working class who is secretly heir to uh, real fancy spy stuff. So that's not the only connection, though. We go a little bit further back between Kick-Ass, or uh, between uh, Stardust and Kingsman, we have Kick-Ass. Another story about a kid who's decided he is, uh, you know, going to come, uh, despite coming from small beginnings, is going to do something great. Uh, and again, X-Men, uh, another film right there, is another film about this. So I think his filmography continues to to show these just really interesting stories, uh, typically about young men, because, well, he's a man, and that's kind of how it happens. Uh, but that said, I, I think all these screenplays do have something to say about narratives that we sell young men. I think Matthew Vaughn, at the very least, seems to have some self-awareness. Uh, and to round out how we look at that self-awareness, I am going to have one piece of uh, writing that we're going to be reading. Uh, I don't love Film Crit Hulk. I think writing in all caps is obnoxious as fuck. Uh, there's a reason that he has stopped doing this. I also think calling yourself uh, Film Crit Hulk is a weird gimmick but i like film crit hulk i'm not here to, to bemoan the man because there's a really great piece he wrote on matthew vaughn for birth movies death a few years back about kingsman being such subtle satire that it kind of stops being satire and how well does that work um so this is a really great uh, uh article it does cover stardust and kick ass and uh first x-men first class a little bit but it's primarily concerned with kingsman it was written shortly after that film came out uh, and it was kind of a response to the reactions to the uh, final butt sex joke at the end of that movie and uh, how effective that is. And I, I think uh, Hulk in this article makes the case uh, that no, this movie knows what it's doing. It's, it's doing a bit. It, it is making you think about the structure of James Bond movies by design um, and the, the nature of the, this kind of um, building up we put on the arist aristocratic seeming, right? So a uh, really good article to kind of round out this general idea about Matthew Vaughn's filmography, uh, kind of give us some some structure. There was one article in particular I was looking for that I could not find, unfortunately. So there's more reading out there uh, about Vaughn's filmography kind of through this lens. Um, I've read a couple of articles that discuss this recurring idea in, in his in his films, but unfortunately I couldn't find all the writing because uh, some of these are things I read quite a while ago, believe it or not. This is uh, a reading of his filmography that's been out there for a while, and I think Stardust might might be my favorite example of that because it always seems to exist in these satires of very classically English stories, right? The fairy tale, the James Bond story, um, and uh, again, even when he moves to the States and makes Kick-Ass, it's still operating in a very decidedly, uh, you know, even in 2010 before the giant, uh, before we reached critical mass on the superhero boom, it was kind of an established uh, line of heightened, you know, fairy tale, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, so again, I think all of his films work as satires of kind of existing uh, types of fantastical stories and have this theme of uh, children forgotten by uh, parents who come from great things. So again, interesting filmography that, that we've got on this Matthew Vaughn. You should check it out.
there's there's a lot going on there under the surface despite him being a you know commercial studio filmmaker um and uh, i think jane goldman his uh his uh writing partner throughout all of the these years um has been a big part of that but uh, yeah good filmography interesting stuff Cool, cool. I like that very much. I would be interested to take that class. So um, I am envisioning this class, 20th and 21st century British fantasy in multimedia. That would be the course. Okay. And so it would be, and the module would be on Neil Gaiman. We would do it by, you know, sort of major authors and writers. That makes sense. I mean, that yes. would be the way. To, so, you know, you have a Lewis section, you have a Tolkien section, you have a Joe Rowling section, and you have an Earth Little Gwyn for sure. Earthsea is a great little series of books that no one ever talks about, and they should, because if you're not... Okay. Is that Waterworld? Uh, no. Um, it's what if, uh, what, what Gandalf like was like when he was a kid. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, and he was nice, kind of a, yeah. you know, kind of a jack wagon and good. You know, and, and so it's, it, 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 I like it. I like it a lot. Um, but Ursula Gwynn is great and she just recently passed away and there's not enough stuff about her. Um, but, um, Neil Gaiman would be one of the sections there. And so we would just sort of read some of his major works and also look at adaptations. And so Stardust, along with the novella for Stardust, um, illustrated by Charles Vest, released by Vertigo Publishing, would be part of what we would use for that. Um, I would also then look at, and I would only look at the film, um, for, uh, Mirror Mask, uh, which is directed by an artist named Dave McKeon. And I uh, love Dave McKeon a lot. He did all the covers for the original um, run of the Sandman series. Oh, okay. So those very sort of almost abstract, cubist, sur- surreal kind of covers, um, ma- massive amounts of photoshopping and whatnot. Uh, that's sort of his style. And he uses all of his various artistic stylings to sort of design this particular fantasy story um, about a young girl, which I think is a good change. And so we would look that's at nice. that, um, look at Mirror Mask. Um, there is an accompanying um, sort of like after-the-fact no- novel written by Gaiman, but I don't know if we'd read it necessarily. Um, I think we would read Coraline and then look at Harry- Henry Schellick's um, animated um, stop motion animated book or m- movie, which is very much th- he worked with um, Tim Burton for Nightmare Before Christmas, so it's got that same sort of style there. Um, so it's very Tim Burton esque. Uh, there again, a young uh, female heroine uh, for the story, and I think that's also very very interesting uh, to look at and to discuss. And then um, I think we probably end up reading uh, the lastly his little uh, American Gods sequel novella. That's included in his uh, work of short fictions called Fragile Things. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about uh, the other one, the uh, Anasazi Boys, Anasazi Boys, and, and Anasazi. Uh, which is very good. Yeah. Which is also a uh, sort of a sequel within the universe. Yeah, but, that's why I thought you were going to mention that one. I but, don't know about this. One. But, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's about Shadow fighting Grendel. Oh, uh, okay. And that's so cool. connects it all to Beowulf, right? And so he's in Scotland and he has to fight Beowulf. And it's the, included at the very, very end of that particular collection. It's about 90 pages long or something like that. Awesome. And uh, so, yeah, sort of look at that and just the ways in which he plays with the genre, the ways in which he's aware of what's going on. I would also read uh, The Problem with Susan, uh, which is a bit of short fiction uh, in Fragile Things, in which um, he is very, very troubled that um, Susan doesn't get to go to Narnia Heaven, and it involves a sex scene between Aslan and the White Witch. Hey, you know what? He's right. It's fucking weird that Susan doesn't get to go to heaven at the end of that book. It is, and Lewis has problems, but... um, Uh, Turns out the end of Narnia is kind of racist and misogynistic. Uh, Well, it's tough. Um, There there are discussions to be had. It's not tough. That's what it is. There there are discussions to be had. Things can be good and bad at the same time. Yes, correct. So anyway, uh, that's the way I would approach that. And just again, the way in which, as a postmodernist, I think, is what you would sort of uh, align Gaiman as... Um, the way in which he uh, does uh, some metatextual stuff uh, with his work, and that's where we would go. Yeah, his preoccupation with fairy tales and like uh, taking them through that postmodern lens is really interesting. So um, there you go, dear Lister. Um, your syllabus just got longer. I believe now it's time to get down to business. And that business is, as always, analysis. And we've been sort of hinting around at this and, like, how you what, how you sort of, you know, get down to the taxonomy of what is this film in terms of its fantasy aesthetic. Because it's not high fantasy. It's not Lord of the Rings. But it's closer to high fantasy than low fantasy. It's, yeah. Well, I mean, it's just period low fantasy. That's true. Okay. Right? I mean, uh, that, 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 at least that's my sense, is that it's, it's, it's late 19th century low fantasy. Um, this kid is from the real world, and it is, just happens to be the 19th century real world, and uh, you know crosses over into a fantasy realm, and now discovers that there's it's just like 
you know, what you find in the Chronicles of Narnia where these kids from World War II, or what you find in Harry Potter where these kids from 1993 find themselves in a magical world, right? It seems to be more along those lines, but it's got a significant tonal difference as well, though. Um, that um, Harry Potter and uh, the Chronicles of Narnia are much more serious, and this is not. It's so funny. Decidedly not serious. No, it's taken the piss the entire time. Yeah, uh, out of everything it can possibly find. Yeah, just there, there are there's nothing sacred, and that's not a bad thing. No, absolutely not, because I, I think this kind of fairy tale is really well-worn territory. Uh, and I guess you, you'd be able to speak to this, Dustin. I don't know how much of this comes from uh, Gaiman's original text, but uh, the the actual story itself uh, from Vaughn and Goldman's screenplay is just so good at subverting these ideas. Because even the Claire Danes character, right, is kind of an archetype we've seen before. Uh, this celestial being who is... The cool girl? Uh, not even the cool girl. Slightly haughty princess? You no, know, I... H-A-U, not H-O-T-T. I, yeah. I know what you meant. Yeah. No, this idea of this character that is like super emotionally intelligent but lacks any kind of cunning or guile... Uh, this idea of somebody who's observed people but has never lived among them. Again, this, yeah. this celestial being come to live among regular folk. I don't know that's necessarily quite in that, that cool girl idea of the haughty princess thing. Because I, I like that... Uh, I actually saw one review not be a big fan of Claire Dane's performance, which I think is wrong. I think her performance is really good here. It's It's kind of underplayed. It could be a little bit bigger and a little weirder and a little more ethereal. But I kind of like that it's she's she's kind of a no bullshit regular person that happens to also be a star, right? It's, it's and also I'm a star, yeah. What, I I sparkle because I'm a star, duh. That's what we do, yeah. But but at the same time, is very kind of no 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 no. This isn't how people are supposed to treat each other. What's happening right now? Uh, but then again, finds herself uh, tricked by Michelle Pfeiffer quite a bit. So I, I like this this the way this character seems to be. Kind of a, uh, a new interpretation of an archetype we've seen before. Absolutely. And I mean, you can go back into Tolkien here and see like other ways that this same sort of uh, uh, love story could be handled. I'm thinking about Baron and Luthien, Baron being a human and Luthien being an elf, or further back in the Silmarillion stuff where you've got King Thingol, the elf, and Melian, who's one of the Valar. She's a Maya. She's like a goddess or a demigod. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Dustin, but isn't this uh, the same thing that you were talking about on the uh, Patreon content? I, I mean, not really. I mean, I, I described some of the works, but. Uh, I what, was just reminding people that they can go listen oh, you to can Patreon. Listen I, to was trying, yeah, I was trying to do a cheap oh, one. I was like, I'm not going to the same place. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm doing an advertisement while you're making a point. Hey, if you subscribe on Patreon, you can hear me talk more about this. Why um, are we whispering? I don't know, because I feel dirty for asking for money, probably. Thanks. ASMR. All right, moving on, though. <laughs> in, in Tolkien, though, yes. these, these uh, are more star-crossed lovers. It, it is more of an issue that because of their uh, difference in species, mm. that there's a real struggle there and what's appropriate and what's okay. And, and also, there's just – it's much, much more um, – Again, uh, the sort of uh, chivalric kind of romance mm. where it's love as an idea, you know. And, and Which is of, something this this uh, film actively kind of bats against, right? No, no, they fall in love. They they see each other and they see how they act and behave. And it's not just I beheld you dancing in the moonlight and suddenly I was all a swoon and a dither. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. You know, it's, it's more of I, I got to know you and you are noble and good and generous and kind and oh. you're the kind of person I want to spend the rest oh, of my life with. That sounds so nice. Right. I mean, it's... It, it's much more real life than just yeah. simply, I, I was struck by your beauty and now my heart is arrested for you forever. Was, what? Yeah, which is, well, that's, again, that's that's the kind of love story that we think we're getting at the start of Stardust. Right, right? with Victoria. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But as soon as uh, he meets Yvain, Yvain? Yvain. Yvain. Uh, thank you, Arthur. Uh, th that kind of goes out the window, right? And it, it comes uh, to this monologue that we've already mentioned where Yvain's like, hey, bud, you don't have to do anything. To prove you love somebody. You know that, right? You just got to be there. Well, I love how he's on a quest for her love, and she's like, and what's her quest? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what's yeah. she doing? She, she calls it this out. This whole very... system's broken. Exactly. Yeah. She calls I, I, I it think... out super early in the film. I think he wants the head of a polar bear. I think that's really what he wants. That's why that's he said bit. it. Yeah, he wants the head of a polar bear, because it's, yeah, he just wants to go on an adventure. It's not a, hey, hey, bud, hey, Tristan, it's not about Victoria. It's not. It's not about her, bud. You want to go on an adventure. Yeah, he you kinda... idiot. Uh, but again, I like where this goes, right? Be just based on what you just said, because I think that is the nice thing about it is, I mean, yeah, it's pretty standard, uh, meet cute fair. They hate each other at first, but it's obvious they have chemistry and they 
grow to like each other. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty standard stuff, but I, I think it, it hews a little closer to what you were talking about in, in Tolkien, this idea of, I see how you act, I see how you are, you're good people. Yeah, and, and he, I mean, it is a human falling in love with an angel. I mean, basically is the script that we're dealing with here. More or less, And yeah. um, that's good. That's totally fine. And it, they don't even wrestle with, like, well, you know, I'm not from around here. And I don't know what, you know, the, 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 the seraphim would say or, you know, whatever. Yeah, it doesn't, it, Stardust doesn't give a shit about that. And I think that's super important to the story working. Right, yeah. And so it doesn't have those kind of problems. And, like, well, what do, what do star kids look like, you know, or yeah. whatever? It, it assumes uh, beings who aren't totally the same fall in love. Yeah. Deal and, with it. And just, yeah, that what's the problem? Move on. Yeah, it's fine. And I think that's that's successful. I think that's something you want more of. Absolutely. From these kinds of stories. So, um, uh, you know, and in terms of its masculine journey, I think if we were moving over, um, you know, the sort of boy finding his way mm. in the world kind of thing, um, it is uh, much of Yvain uh, getting him there as it is him getting there himself. You know, she becomes the quest. He gets there immediately. I, the story, uh, this is where it subverts. The use of the Babylon candle itself at the very beginning, which is sort of like a port key a la harry potter i guess yeah uh where you can just light the thing it's and fast go travel where, yeah you can go where you want to go fast travel to his objective so he yeah teleported and he's there he's got he's at the star um and finds out it's a lady um which was not expected um but once that happens the adventure is them working together and it is them cooperating together in order to accomplish a set of purposes. And even though he does end up discovering he has uh, a very special parentage and he's able to do some things, it does a thing, and I've talked about this before, about how a lot of fantasy stories are all about you avoiding and abandoning your friends uh, in order to use the magic inside you. This is what Harry Potter directs us towards. This is when Luke switches off the targeting computer and uses the Force and those kind of things, as opposed to something more like a Wizard of Oz kind of story, where Dorothy finds herself in a magical world she makes friends she cooperates together they all use their various yeah, I was, skills and I was abilities. thinking about a sensate but yeah that's fine we can go with her, uh, Dorothy Dorothy well yeah, I was thinking sensate but well, yeah no that both gay icons we can be, we're fine I mean absolutely but the, you make a good point right this is a more collaborative story yes. these are stories about making friends and recognizing how you're all special in your own ways and how you can help each other not how you 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 only you the special have the magic juju within yes and and, and so it, it it does something that I think is very very important and useful and it, and it does tell a kind of story that is not the same again and these are all masculine and stories for the most part as their hero's journey in which the dude just learns how to be the hero and he finds the sword of Rothgar or whatever you know stupid yeah the less interesting version of the story right is Tristan having some sort of specialness because he's from from Earth and from uh, do we ever get a name for this land? Stormhold. 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 Yeah, but it's right. fairy, right? Yeah, this land of the fae or whatever. The, the, the perilous I think in the book land. it is called fairy. Yeah, it's fairy, the perilous. Yeah. I mean, Stormhold is the name of the kingdom within. Yeah. And, yeah, it, gotcha. and, and, and so when you travel across inside the uh, novella, when you travel across the wall, it is the entire new universe. Like it, it is an un, it's another world all in together. It's, it's Narnia. I mean, it's it's its own gotcha. new, completely different place. There just happens to be the thin, thin spot between uh, our sort of mundane reality and that fantastic reality. Well, that's kind of the. I mean, that seems to be how it works in the movie as well, is it not? That's I mean, kind of how I. I well, it doesn't it seem as. I mean, it's it's like a pocket universe kind of. Yeah, it, it's kind of it, like France. That's true. We don't ever. It get, does feel like France. Yeah, yeah. A pocket universe is a good way to put it, though. Yeah, it, it, we don't get a sense of how big it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's fair. But again, I, I think the less interesting version of this, right, is Tristan because he's from both Stormhold and regular ass England. He he's got some special magic because he's you know the chosen special, right? Right. And it's it's not that. It's about him learning uh, how to listen to other people. Like uh, Bobby, oh, oh, Bobby De Niro teaches him how to sword fight. Yvain teaches him how to, you know, have a little bit more uh, emotional guile. Uh, and self-respect. And self-respect, yeah. Right. It's it's all about other people teaching him, uh, you know, how to not be an idiot. And he faces various challenges that help develop him, but he can't accomplish this sort of goal by himself. And I mean, Harry Potter does a better job here because it's Ron and Hermione who always get, you yeah. know, Harry through stuff. But it still comes down to sort of the magic in Harry, right? Yeah, the, the magic in Harry being that, like... The bad guy just can't kill him. Right. Why? Because. Because, well, he's got the scar. Yeah, because he's magic. He's more protection. But again, there's no, right? There's nothing inherently magic about Tristan. He happened to have lucked out and have a family heirloom that, you know, covered yeah. his ass for a while. But there's nothing special about him, per se. Right. And yeah. I think that's super important. Other than he's just a, he's a good dude. Well, yeah, and just happens to have a connection to this, this you know, fantasy place. Right. 
And so I do like that sort of move there. But I do want to think a little bit about the gender stuff here because I do think... Oh, you mean how like he kidnapped her? How like he kidnapped her, all the like a Beauty and the Beast kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, she does sort of agree to go, you know, but he does leave the chain on her nonetheless. Yeah. Well, and I think, that, I don't know, does the novella get rid of the chain pretty quickly too? Yes, it does. I don't think that's a smart call. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he very quickly moves past it, but it does have sort of like some of the same problems of a Stockholm Syndrome, Beauty and the Beast kind of thing um, that might be, you know, present as well. And so that's that's troublesome as well. But also in terms of gender stuff and the damsel in distress, I've got to think about um, the the queerness of uh, Captain Shakespeare. It's I, so it, powerful. Ugh. It, it, okay. I, I, I like it. I I, I want to like it but i i really i i worry about bobby de niro i guess maybe i, I think bobby is fully committed to it okay. i think bobby is not doing a joke i don't yeah. think it's a goof i think bobby takes this that's why i i don't know about it i know this performance resonated with you too arthur for me it's because he seems to be taking this completely seriously it doesn't feel like he's doing a inflated caricature there are a couple elements but i mean yeah i think he's playing it pretty straight yeah uh, pun, <laughs> pun not intended. Yeah. Again, I, I get where your concern is, though, Justin. Yeah. And I think Arthur's right, though. Like, he, he's not doing it. He's not pulling a grin, right? Like, the, there is a, a real lived in character yeah. here. And, like, because Bobby feels. Full, I don't I love that we're just calling him Bobby. Yeah. Oh, Bobby D. Uh, oh, when you're good friends with somebody. When As soon as I saw him in that can can dress, I just shouted, I love you, Bobby! <laughs> <laughs> He's so, and that's, that's the thing, right? Like, right. sure, th- we do get a full, like, him, like, uh, dressing up and having a dance by himself, and I, I get why that might make you feel, is this too much? Is this too silly? When, when, he, when he was printing in front of the mirror was when I was like, are I, we? I, I think they it. pay it off, though. I mean, I, I think that conversation at the table underscores it. Bingo. And, and, makes it work because you're right arthur that conversation kind of lays the groundwork for who he is as a character right he is this this artistic guy this this person who has like a lot of interior life that just gets stifled down so he can play sky pirate well he inherited a you know a job and he has to sort of you know yeah i like the idea of the double life i like the idea of sort of living both ways and i like the idea of his friends knowing accepting him accepting him and also being okay with him hiding for while he's hiding you know yeah they you know they're not going to make him come out just because you know that's yeah, well, he's on his own journey yeah, we're he, not gonna yell we, at him we always knew you were a whoopsie right and, like, well and then even in that moment right when somebody makes a joke like somebody says something even derogatory, vaguely derogatory yeah. the rest of the crew's like man shut up grandpa like, shush yeah, you can't me. say things like that go back to sleep grandpa get, get back don't listen to him like yeah i think the, the 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 film itself and you know de niro's performance have a lot of affection and love for Captain Shakespeare. I and, really think so. And I, okay, I was hoping we would get there to the place where we accept it as nuanced. Cause I, I was worried about it. And the reason why is because that, this particular character, the way he's written is not written by Neil Gaiman. Gaiman doesn't write it this way at all. And so, um, Gaiman does deal with a trans character at one point though in his work. And I have with me also, um, the, uh, the fifth edition, is it right? Fifth edition yep. of, of, uh, the Sandman, which is a game of you. And uh, there's a character in there called Wanda, um, whose dead name's Alvin. And uh, Wanda is, uh, you know, she's guiding another character called Barbie, who has a deep and rich fantasy world in which she also inhabits uh, within her dreams. And uh, there's an item, you know, it's, 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 it's got its own MacGuffin and all that stuff. And I don't have to get into all the details. But at one point, um, because Barbie is now in a coma, several other women are going to travel and try to find a way to get to this dream zone to save her and also to find out why this baddie's in both worlds and trying to kill people. And uh, Wanda can't go because they have to go on the moon's road, and she only lets women come. And Wanda... Oh, fuck you, moon. Well... Fuck you, moon. Wanda's a lady. Or Neil... Well, and I don't know. Is Neil is Neil? I, see, that's the that's question. The question: What is Neil doing? That, well, since Neil didn't write this character within Stardust, then I, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, let's go ahead. And, that's it's, interesting. It's an interesting dialogical point there. And so, yeah. there, so here the moon says, "No, you know what? You're 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 you've got the parts. You're a dude. It's a genetic thing." And yet, at the very end of it, um, spoiler alert on an old comic, Wanda dies um, at the end of everything. I'm very very sorry. Damn, Neil. Um, she dies, and um, Barbie goes to Wanda's funeral, which is Alvin's funeral in Kansas, uh, with her very conservative, you know, sort of East Kansas yeah. kind of farmer family. Yeah. And uh, the last thing that happens 
is uh, Barbie takes out her lipstick and crosses out Alvin on the tombstone and writes her name as Wanda. You know, which is a really kind of moving moment. That's nice. Okay. But it's also but Neil, you a didn't, gesture. Yeah, it's like, Neil, you already killed Wanda. You already had the moon say she's not a real lady. And the one black character is who he kills. So. What the shit, so, Neil? Neil, you kind of messed up there. And so I, this writing of... Was that part of why Captain Shakespeare like had you on edge? Was yeah. because of the writing of this character? Yeah, the writing of these other characters and just sort of Neil's Gaiman's... N- Sort of fumbling of these possibilities. I, I yeah, I, I get it, and I think you know if you end it on that can can sequence and Mark Strong busts in and you know kicks his butt or whatever, it's a much more problematic thing. But for the 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 crew to rally with him and then be fully supportive and say, "Hey, we know we don't care. You're still our captain. Yeah. Well, you're it, getting the job done. Yeah. It doesn't matter." And for De Niro to not like crumble in that moment, for him to yeah. be like, "Hey, what are you? Hey." But he's not he's not ashamed. Get out of my cabin. He's owning it. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the importance of that moment. As and, far and, as I can tell. I'm with you there, Arthur. I, I, I'm in agreement. Uh, and again, not to say that, you know, um, Matthew Vaughn's not capable of writing this character on his own. But I think uh, Jane Goldman. I mean, there's a reason. I, Goodman. I, is it Goldman or Goodman? I always, anyway. It's Goldman, I it is, think. I thought it so, is. too. Okay. Not saying that, you know, Vaughn can't pull this off on his own. But, you know, to... Uh, uh, his own credit, uh, Neil Ga- Gaiman uh, hooked the two of them up because mm-hmm. he was having a hard time writing the romance. He just he copped to it. It was like, I can't quite nail it. And Jane Goldman came on, and they've been collaborators ever since. And, and I think she is a big part of why, and Matthew Vaughn probably knows this, which is why they keep working together. She's a big part of why most of his movies work. I, there's just some nuance that she is able to help him breathe into these films, I think. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm not saying that She's better at writing emotions because she's a lady. I am saying Matthew Vaughn might be worse at writing them because he's a, a man and we get taught to not access our feelings. Uh, but there, there is so much nuance because as, as we've talked about, you know, Tristan, let's kind of pivot a little bit. Tristan, uh, his masculine journey um, is so baked in with a lot of cliches, especially the way it treats you vain is like maybe uh, for lack of a nicer or a more original way to put it uh she could operate as a manic pixie dream girl in this story right and i for me i don't feel like she does i think she gets there no yeah no i think the film uh, is even-handed in its again letting her be the one that says we're in love idiot like letting her be the one that calls it i think is a is a big move uh and i think it works really well does that come from the the novel as well uh yeah i the confession while he's a dormouse and all that yeah, yeah. that that's that's, that's all that's all in the novel so gotcha. yeah, that's all there i think it works really well and i think that along with as arthur said you know the acceptance of uh yeah the acceptance of captain shakespeare by his crew and the the agency that you vain despite getting kidnapped like what twice mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean that's you're already playing in uh you know, treacherous ground in terms of letting your female character actually have something to do when she's kidnapped multiple times. But I think the film does a pretty good job of letting her have agency and in, in uh, growth and, and just being interesting, despite the fact that a lot of the story happens around her. But I don't ever feel like it happens to her or Tristan, for that matter. Arthur mentioned the score earlier being so propulsive. And I think another thing that helps this propulsiveness is just following basic storytelling rules, right? Things don't just happen. It's not, this film does such a good job of saying this happens because of this happens or therefore this happens. Like it's, it's does a really great job of showing you the sequence of events of letting the story be, uh, the sum, the sum of actions and not just a bunch of random shit that happens. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big part of it in terms of letting all these characters we're talking about be interesting and not just one note. Absolutely. And I do think the way, I think the her name is Wanda moment is when um, Bobby De Niro gets to wink at Superman at the end. I mean, that that's sort of where we get it, right? It's so good. It, that would not have been as funny when before Henry Cavill was Superman. It would have been an okay moment. It's amazing now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bobby, Bobby, Bobby De Niro, just with the most powerful wink that has ever been wonked, is just <laughs> wonked. lays Henry Cavill <laughs> down on the floor. <laughs> and Sienna Miller, uh, she sells it. She, I feel bad for her. Victoria is such an uninteresting character, right? But she does, she does, she has fun with it. Yeah, she does, she does. Um, any other major thoughts on um, the movie Stardust? I just want to say that I, uh, I, I didn't think of to mention this earlier. I, I love the voodoo cadaver fight yes. scenes. 
that's there's no an real ad- analysis that's there. an addition as well and i like it uh but it is the the choreography on that is just a a delight and i think it is just a pulls it off very well um and so I, I just want to give a little nod to the fight choreography in this one and, and that work to uh, have cadaver Mark Strong uh, be very uh, corpsey and uh, very interesting. Yeah, no, it's a ton of fun. I think that whole final uh, fight. The third act. Yeah, it's The whole great. third act is strong. Because it's, you know, it's not really a, a fight heavy, you know, a sword fight heavy fairy tale. It is very much people use magic or magical things happen and they, they find a really cool way to have a big action set piece at the end that still follows the rules they've set up. Like, yeah, yeah they, they don't change the tone of the action in the third act, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Um, the only thing that I, I, I thought about, and again, this kind of comes back to Matthew Vaughn's uh, background. Um, the, the lighting of the village of wall is something that really struck me because it would have been, you know, we talked a lot about the tone throughout this, right? The, the way it's, it isn't really high fan. It's kind of got, the look of high fantasy, but the actual mechanics of the world are low fantasy. But then it's, you know, got this very satirical kind of joke like, oh, fairy tales are stupid, kind of laughing at it. But, you know, playing a little bit in that Shrek ballpark. So it would have made sense if Wall was kind of dreary and boring and very capital E English. And there is something so charming and wholesome about Wall. Like it's no, no, no. It's it's a simple country village. Like that doesn't mean yeah. it's bad. It's just simple yeah it's a small town it's just it's a, like the uh, it's like the village in uh, beauty and the beast that bell lives in it's yeah the same kind of small town charming community right like uh, i think so many and again to pivot back to arthur talking about the hero's journey i think so many heroes journeys are about uh you know our the protagonist growing up somewhere that just is sucky tatooine well tatooine is the big one right Pri- yeah. privet drive privet drive yeah, Ab- yeah. Ab- either abusive family or just like hard farm life yeah this is just simple country living. Like, it's just, yeah. it's not bad. It's just. There's more to the world and he wants to see it. Yeah. But yeah. again, I think the choice to let the film uh, shoot this village so lusciously. Like, I mean, there's just big, beautiful sunbeams cascading in through windows, lighting table. Like, it just looks great. It, it looks incredible. You watch this movie. Uh, you, you could envision a, a, a you could envision a movie where Wall is the magical place somebody wants to get to. Mm-hmm. I guess is what I mean, and I, I think it's interesting for Vaughn to to shoot. Uh, I don't know who the DP uh, is on this off the top of my head, but for Vaughn and the DP to to shoot those sequences uh, so lusciously, I think is a great call because it, it lets Tristan be kind of an inherently like wholesome guy because mm-hmm. he comes from just this kind of. Really sweet, charming place. Uh, it's Ben Davis, who you would know from uh, Captain Marvel, Three Billboards, Ooh. Doctor Strange, Age of Ultron, wow. um, yeah, Guardian, a lot of the Marvel stuff he's of doing. A lot of Marvel stuff. Yeah. Seven Psychopaths, so he's working with McConaugh. Gotcha. McDonough uh, quite a bit as well. Hmm. So, uh, pretty pretty in-depth. Uh, he did Kick-Ass as well. Huh. So yeah, he's, he's doing a lot of stuff. He's got some good movies in there. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know what? Age of Ultron? It's a better looking movie than a lot of Marvel movies. It does look very good. And Doctor look. Strange. Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange is so good. Yeah. We don't need to get into why some of the Marvel movies look bad. Um, CGI yeah. blending. Yeah. I, I mean, desired. I think what you're speaking to is just the element of the production design of this whole world. It's mm. just well orchestrated and makes it worth the, the, the pirate's ship. Uh, this flying kind of, uh, I can't think of it, the, the hot air balloon element of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Semi-dirigible, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, as well as the the kind of the witch's stronghold, their little home within the water uh, in that area, you know, it's all really cool. I think uh, the design is matches well with the characters and also with the, the the way the world is built out. And so I appreciate that quite a bit about it. Yeah, I definitely believe in it. The uh, production designer on this is a uh, Gavin Boquette. Uh, who uh, did a whole bunch of the adventures of Indiana Jones from like 99 and 2000. Oh, of yeah. young Indiana Jones? Yeah, the, this is the Sean Patrick Flannery uh, yeah. Indiana Jones TV series. Yeah, isn't that fun? And then a bunch of the Star Wars prequels. Nice. Cool. Weird career. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's great. Uh, I, that's it. I don't think there's any more analysis to be done. I just really want to talk about this good-ass cinematography, and I'm, I'm glad Arthur brought in the production design, too. Well, let's render a verdict, then. Um, shelf or trash, what say you regarding Stardust? I go to you first, Arthur. What do you say, buddy? I am very, very gently going to put it on the shelf. Uh, one, because I, I think it worked. I mean, I, I think, you know, in the same vein as Princess Bride, which I think is a very shelfable film as well, I think this kind of harkens back to a lot of those same reasons why I, I think this is one you could show with a family and become a cult, you know, a touchstone of the family house for growing up or whatever. And also just 
purely because we don't get a lot of fantasy that's this good uh, or enjoyable. I mean, it's just rare to get a fantasy film at all. That's actual, you know, they're fairies and mystical creatures. A lot of the fantasy stuff I looked up was like Captain Marvel. I mean, kind of fantasy. Yeah, but it's not what I would quantify as, you know, a fantasy film. And so just on the pure, you know, minuscule volume of the films, I would shelf it just because I think it's a, a good example of it at work. All right, very good, very good. What do you say, Dalton? Are you going to shelf this one or trash it? I mean, this has got one of the all-time great Robert De Niro performances, period. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Goodfellas, and then it starts. <laughs> and then right right up there, you've got Batman Returns, Stardust for uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. I mean, just two of, our greatest, two of our greatest screen legends of all time turning in some really fun, big performances that, again, you can do a big performance and still show up to work mm-hmm. and then still yeah. not... You don't chew up the scenery yes. around everybody else. You Anthony just Hopkins. you just moisten it for them. Yeah, uh, yeah. I I think this movie's great. I think it might be my favorite Matthew Vaughn movie by a lot. Wow. Uh, I I think letting this world be just a wholesome fantasy realm kind of uh, softens that that edge that Vaughn has sometimes, which isn't bad, but it kind of veers into uh, well Mark Millar territory for me, uh, which makes sense seeing you know uh, he did Kick Ass, which is based on Mark Millar, and Kingsman based on Mark Millar. And uh, I think that that stuff a little goes a long way. I got to be honest. Some of the I'll tell you what, when the when these British guys, these Gen X British dudes do satire, guys, come on, calm down a little bit. Knock it off with this edgelord shit. Uh, And again, I think operating in this really kind of wholesome vibe is good for Matthew Vaughn. I'd like to see him do more stuff like this because, again, Kingsman, kick ass, even first class to some extent, like these are all kind of of a piece uh, with each other, and, and Stardust is just so different from anything else in this guy's filmography that I, I think is really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's part of why I ended up doing a study of him for uh, expanding the syllabus. So yeah, I say I, I'm gonna firmly shelf this. I think it's there's just not anything like this, and it's kind of forgotten about. Nobody really remembers this movie again. It barely made back its budget. Uh, so yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot here to talk about, and uh, as Arthur said. I think this could easily accidentally become a one, just one family's favorite fantasy film. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm also going to shelf it. I'm going to tell you where I'm going to shelf it. Okay. In a particular section of the shelf that is going to be called non-franchise fantasy films, right? And so it goes with, like, your Spiderwick Chronicles. It goes with your Princess Bride. Your Bridges to Terabithia. Your Bridges to Terabithia. Um, Legend. Dark Crystal. Oh, yeah. You know. Well, Dark Crystal's a franchise now, bud. I guess it is now. But... If it's based on a book property, is it not franchise? Where were you? That's an adaptation. It's an adaptation, right? Okay. It's a franchise when it's like multiple installments, and, and you know, becomes a thing. Yeah, it becomes yeah. video games. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, if it's got Dumbledore, Gandalf, or but Ben Kenobi, you know, for whatever you're in heard. one movie. If yeah. nobody's <laughs> trying to track down a cereal box for the movie, then it's probably safe to say it's not a franchise. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's no Happy Meal tie-in whatsoever. We're right. okay. Yeah, so I mean, it goes in that sort of category, and it's very good, and it's exactly the the top level of that kind of stuff as well. So. I like it a lot. I would definitely shelf Stardust. So yeah. there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts. So what's our next uh, whimsical, fun fantasy film? Oh Well, uh, I, I'm proud to announce that it is time for our second annual September submarine movie. <laughs> We're doing K-19, The Widowmaker, the feel-good movie of 2002. Wait, has it only been a year since we did uh, Crimson Tide? Has it been two years? It's got to be two years. I was still I living, you're right. uh, yeah, yeah, still you're living right. off of Broadway. Our Doesn't semi-annual. Matter. Semi-annual. Our semi-annual. Our biannual. Our biannual submarines in September feature. Uh, so yeah, we've, we've got a... So in two years, we're going to be doing uh, Hunt for Red October. Uh, and then two years after that, we'll do Das Boot. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we got uh, we got Matthew Vaughn's Forgotten Movie. Uh, we're going back to Catherine Bigelow. I'm really excited to revisit her for one of her lesser films. Harrison Ford. Yeah. This is... You know that this movie was like an international incident? I did not. Uh-huh. Because it's all about giving the Americans credit for stealing the Enigma machine. This movie is... We're going to talk about a lot Ooh. of stuff. You know who wrote this one? Fucking David Ayer. Really? Yeah, so you know it's twisted, baby. And it's got a... 
controversial public figure, uh, Liam Neeson. Oh my god, <laughs> we're gonna talk about this movie. Uh, hot if, dog. If you have hot takes about K19, The Widowmaker, or Stardust, you can find us on Twitter at good underscore trash. Uh, you can also just go to goodtrashmedia.com if you want to see everything we've ever made and all the things that our friends have made for that website as well. Uh, last but certainly not least, patreon.com forward slash GTM if you want to throw a couple shekels our way and listen to that Patreon content we alluded to. And, you know, rate, review, subscribe. You know that this is Dog and Pony Show. You've listened to a podcast before. Uh, that's it. Thank you very much for tuning in. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.